It is my great pleasure to introduce Jordan Belfort. Well, thank you, sir. Appreciate you. you doing this. My pleasure. All right, I got to be with the Wolf of Wall Street. I got to get my <laughs> jacket off to get this off oh, right, wow. okay? Wow. Cursing, Let's get this okay. thing going, all right? There we go. All right, excuse me. I genuinely apologize. I really wow. do. Are those so, National Kindness Day? So uh, this is National Kindness Day. Jordan Belfort knows that it's National Kindness Day. How great is that? Okay. So the irony of being, me having the opportunity to speak to the Wolf of Wall Street on National Kindness Day. Let's keep that in mind, Jordan. It's National Kindness Day to the guy sitting across from you. So let me, let, me, let me start by, uh, by saying, uh, obviously, um, I would assume based on the, uh, the billion dollars that the the movies made that uh, many of the folks have seen that, but having read the books, second bestseller at the very end of the second bestseller, uh, you wrote, uh, as I sit here in front of the typewriter, I thought to myself, I feel like pond scum. Right. How do you feel today? Uh, I feel amazing. I'm very fortunate. I think that that last closing line corresponds to the opening line of my first book, which was, you're lower than pond scum. So my first day on Wall Street, uh, the manager looks at me and goes, you know, you're lower than pond scum. And that's how I started the first book. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like kind of ironic that yep. when I went through this whole journey um, and I wrote about it, I kind of felt the same way I did because uh, of the, you know, the rise and fall. But over, the, you know, over those years that, that, that followed, um, you know, I've lived my life in pretty much the exact opposite way. Um, I've lived by the mantra that every person I touch, uh, every person that, like, you know, does business, he's going to walk away saying, wow, I would have paid him 10 times more than mm -hmm. I did. Like, I tried to deliver massive value. I'll try to do it today right now uh, with this interview. Um, and I think that's the mistake I made back in the day is yeah. that I really, I thought success was about just making as much money as you could, as fast as you could, and didn't really matter who got hurt along the way. And now I, you know, obviously feel very different about that. You know, success to me is about, about delivering massive value right. and making money as a byproduct of that. Got so. it, got it. So um, for those who saw the movie, those who read the books, I don't know what would have been described back then as a typical Jordan Belfort day, but <laughs> I'm assuming that they're very different today. What's a typical Jordan Belfort day like today? today? Well, listen, I'm sober for 22 years, uh, which is a long time. Good for you. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? Very I mean, I look, good, very good. I, I look pretty good considering. Um, so, I mean, this is like, I guess it used to be cocaine. Now it's this. Now it's Red Bull, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I need to talk to my sales team. If we're not getting Red Bull residuals out of between what Mr. Fuller and Belfort are doing right now, you guys are not doing a good job, okay? So... So um, essentially, hang on, um, hang on one second. <laughs> there we go. Okay, <laughs> they're not sponsoring me yet, but we're, we're in talks, right? Um, my typical day today, I wake up and I, you know, I, I have a trainer, so I gotta get myself, you know, keep in shape. And then it's really all about, you know, I, I really focus almost all of my energy right now on growing my brand. I have a, I'm very fortunate with the movie, um, and. So I really go about, I have a, a very large online business. So a lot of it is really about, um, you know, putting my message out there, whether it's simply on my phone with Instagram, which I resisted for so long, by the way, because <laughs> I, I thought it was the stupidest thing. 
But the bottom line is, if you really want to be out there marketing, you have to use social media these days. You just have to. If you're not, I urge you to don't. You know, I, I kid around. And I say, you know, I said to my friends, I'm part of the decay of Western society now because I'm actually out there doing these things. I resisted it. I hated it so much. But the power and reach of social media is just unprecedented, and it's growing exponentially. So a lot of my day is centered around that. I, I do a lot of networking now with, with influencers. So the quickest way to grow your, your footprint on social media is to collaborate with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, again, something I resisted for, for a long time. I don't do that anymore. Now I, I do that. And then I have a company. We go around, and I do a lot of filming of, of, of sales trainings. I do consulting. Um, I recently went through another divorce, so I don't teach relationship <laughs> mastery, I promise you that. I teach sales mastery, right? Um, so most of my days really just spend working, yep. um, and uh, I get about 20 emails every day from people around the world who say I changed their lives, so very different than my old life. Wow, that's so that's great. pretty much it. What of the old life do you miss? You know, um, not much. I, I, miss, I, I do miss raising my children. I'm mm -hmm. My children are grown now. So I have a 26-year-old daughter, I have a 24-year-old son, a 23-year-old stepson. Um, I miss my own life, my kids were growing up back yeah. then, so that was just an amazing part of it. But, but as far as the business, I really don't miss that much. I still get to connect with people around the world. So I get the, the, that pump and energy of going out there and touring, I'm on tour right now. Yep. Next stop is Macau after this, should be fun. Um, it's a wild place, Macau, and then, um, but, you know, I, when I look back at my old life, um, I, was, I literally did so, much, so many drugs each day that, um, that I can't look back at that and, and, and say there was one particular day I wish I could relive, literally, because I was literally high almost every single day as I was doing all that. So my life is infinitely better today. So back at, uh, uh, in Chattanooga, the greatest uh, freight city in the United States, as was proven last night in the debate, um, back in Chattanooga at Freightways' office, as we redid this old building, we had a big room that had windows all around. We've got an open floor, lots of energy. We, uh, we call it the Wolf of Wall Street room, <laughs> which, of course, when we say that to visitors, they give us looks like, what goes on inside <laughs> of here? Yeah. So we tell them, no, it's the, it's the energy, the positive, it's the openness. The, the positive side. The of positive it. side of, uh, of doing yeah. that. So, so you do get that. That jolt, you get that uh, I'm not going to leave here kind of feeling from, uh, from what you're doing today? Yeah, this, listen, I think there, there, there's so much. One thing about the movie that is a little bit misleading is that there was this idea that I was up there saying, guys, we got to lose people money. We got, that, that was never, ever the intention. It just wasn't. Anybody with any investment experience knows that if you lose people money, they don't send you money. It's not a way to make, you don't make money by losing other people money. The intent was the opposite. It just proved really hard. Mm -hmm. As you probably noticed in 2008 and nine, it wasn't just, it's very difficult on Wall Street to navigate through all the landmines. So especially I was in low cap venture capital. So a lot of the people we invested in uh, weren't probably good managers like you and they destroyed these companies. We weren't. So the, there was a lot, it was po in the beginning it was positive energy. We were just trying to stay pumped and positive. It was young kids who had come from poor families. Uh, I taught them a system of selling that made them far, you know, you know, it's incredibly effective on the phone. And that fueled the growth. Mm -hmm. So it was a great place. Now there was things that went on there obviously that were not right. And, um, 
but the intent, I, I, so when you talk about that pump, you'd walk into this place and you would just like, it was like an alternative view. It was like, what is going on here? You could, it was electric. Yeah, and, yeah. That, and that's the stuff that you want to retain in a culture where everyone was so success oriented, uh, everyone was working towards a common vision. Um, and you know, if, if you were, you, there was no room for negativity in that office. If you were negative, you, your negativity would get, would get overwhelmed by positivity. So that was really, really inspiring to be there. So that, yeah. that's the part I think you're talking about. So, so as you, as it's evolved and you, you talk about in this, in your system now that you can really make this work for anybody. When you were recruiting back in the day, did you know when you were recruiting somebody, yeah, they're going to fit? Or did people sometimes come in and, and yeah. flame out spectacularly? So we, we were, back then we used what was called the, the mirror test. We put a mirror under someone's nose <laughs> and it fogged up, you're hired, right? That was pretty much the test, right? Because we, what happened was, is that the, um, we weren't paying large draws. We were paying small draws. And um, the system, the sales training was so good that anybody could basically yeah. take to it. It was almost 100% success rate. So, you know, we obviously we would steer away from people that had thick accents, typically because that was a big negative. You know, as an investment broker mm -hmm. on the phone, people don't, they want, they don't want to hear that, right? So it was really more about people that they had a thick accent. Um, that would be a big, big negative. But other than that, whether you were a man, a woman, young, old, sales ability, no sales, didn't really matter. Um, all that mattered was that you're willing to work hard um, and follow instructions, say this, do this, and that was that. So has, has it evolved over time? Uh, you know, there's so much talk about, you know, the, the, the different generations, the millennials versus generation whatever, whatever. Have, have, has the system evolved over time, or is the system yeah. so, yeah. you know, just foolproof that well, it... Well the, well, the system, so I, about a year and a half ago, I actually redesigned, um, that re, I just rebooted it, and it says I just updated it, mostly right. for graphics. Um, and the one fundamental difference right now and, and is that we have the internet, which to me is the greatest source of lead generation that you could mm -hmm. ever have. Yep. And it's amazing for, to me, whenever possible, I tried to use the internet to replace the first call. So back in the old days, right, we would, you know, you'd cold call someone, you'd make 250 calls a day, and then of those, you might find that maybe 50 were even interested in talking to you, and of those 50, maybe 20 of them were qualified to buy what you were selling, and then of those 20, maybe five of them would actually buy. And I'm just making up numbers here, right? Yeah. Nowadays, whenever possible, I try to replace that, to, that top line number with incoming lead generation from Google or Facebook or uh, Instagram or whatever, LinkedIn, whatever it might be. So I get the top line yeah. as an incoming call saying they're already interested in hearing about what you're selling, and then the numbers go from there. So it makes the sales force far more efficient than banging their head against the wall. That's, you know, in both for B2B and B2C. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the system itself, the big changes happened 10 years ago when I actually decided to start teaching the system again 
after this whole insanity happened, I scrubbed the system for ethics and integrity, and I replaced any of the language patterns that were questionable or high pressure, and the system evolved and began, right. it started being used all over the world by corporations and individuals, um, and the results were even better this time around. So, the, you know, it's based on fundamentals of how people make decisions, so that part doesn't yeah. change much. Got it. So, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting you talk about your brand, and it really has, you know, this iteration, this transformation. As you look at the brand, you know, we, we talk about the Wolf of Wall Street room, introduce you mm. to the Wolf of Wall Street. I think there'll come a time when the sales system will be thought of without that sort of Jordan Belfort comma, the Wolf of Wall Street mm. will be Jordan Belfort sales I hope, entrepreneur. Listen, I hope so. It's my, obviously, I, 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 you know, you're pitting on something that's my, probably my biggest pain point sure. in the sense that as a business owner, um, it means that it's, if it's so much linked to me, then well, what if I die or what if I'm not in the mood to do it, right? So the idea is that, yeah, the system is not dependent on me. Yeah. Um, I guess because of the movie, yeah. um, it's so linked to me. But, you know, I think each day, I mean, listen, logistics, ironically, logistics companies are some of our biggest clients. I've trained, probably some of you guys, your companies are here right now, yeah. but I've trained um, the sales forces because it's so geared, logistics is such a sales-centric business because of, you know, it's almost a jump, in some levels, a jump ball every single day out there when you're calling around. And, you know, sometimes people love their carries, they hate their carries one day. You know, a couple of years ago, there was a massive shortage of trucks. Yep. So it was, some of my clients was like, you know, just dialing for dollars because, you know, people just couldn't get, there's all these routes that were just, was, that you couldn't get drivers, right? Uh, now it's a bit different, obviously. Um, um, but, but to me, my hope is that in 10 years from now, my name is not linked to the system. Right. It's just yeah. the system. Well, that's cool. So um, you talk about working with logistics companies I, and knowing some of the ones that you work for. They, they are in the room here. Um, a, a fair amount of the companies out here um, are intermediaries or brokers. Yeah. And it's interesting over time, uh, I've worked in um, those circumstances where there was a point in time where being described as a broker or a brokerage was not thought of as positively because there was so much transactional yeah. and there could be turnover. But now that's very different. It's very much a well-respected and, and, and you know you, you talk about being a broker, but that's why I think the, the, the what things you're talking about and how it's so sales-centric and having that be the cornerstone of the business is so important. So um, if if there were people out there, I'm not trying to do, a, do, do any sort of sales thing here to try to get them to do it, but where do you, where do you get your, your leads from? I mean, on your website? For my business or for logistics? For your business. How do people get you? So I, I have a couple of different ways. Um, I have a website, and people just come there and they call up my speaking business is strictly based on incoming leads. We do no advertising. Um, people call up and that's that. And that's a great, that's a really great business. I love doing it. And if they ever invent the transporter from Star Trek, it would be the greatest <laughs> business ever. Because like, you know, I got paid like a massive amount of money to go to Macau next, yeah. but it's three days to get there. So it's like, you know, you gotta extrapolate the fee over those, you get it? Otherwise it'd be the greatest business in the world, right? Um, so that part is just, you know, people call me and I'm well known as a speaker and, and I get those calls as many as I'd like, they're there. The other parts of my business, I actively do um, advertising and I use social media. Yeah. I use Google as well, but my primary driver is Facebook 
and Instagram. And what I'll do is um, I do ads. They're short ads. They could be a minute long. And typically, um, they, these ads will, you know, be a shave. You know, you're a business owner or an individual. You blah, 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 blah. And then they can click, and I will give them some sort of free training. So click on this link to give you a free training and to speak to someone that's an expert that can actually help you take things to the next level, blah, blah, blah. And they click, it takes them to a landing page. And on that landing page, they enter their name, their phone number, their email. Then they get uh, a free training from me and a call. And you know, there's percentages that we work on. So you know, let's say we yesterday, for instance, we got, um, I'll give you an example. Like yesterday I spent, I think, about $8,000 in advertising. And on that, I got back about $24,000 in sales for the day, plus 100 leads to call. Yeah. So there's a very, it's, if you know how to do this, it's really lucrative on Facebook um, and, and Instagram. I, you know, YouTube is, is great too, but a little bit more difficult. But the thing with Facebook and Instagram is they, the targeting for you guys, it's just unbelievable. You can get so granular with who you want to see your ads. Um, I just suggest that you find someone that, that specializes in doing Facebook ads. I don't, I, I actually outsource mine because it's a very specific thing. Yep. And it's always changing. You've got to be up on the latest algorithm. But you can do wonderful both B2B and B2C, but it's probably a little bit better B2C, but you can do both. Yeah, that's interesting. So um, Freight Waves has, has really done a lot. The marketing behemoth uh, that, that we've really been able to put together has leveraged social media um, significantly. Um, I've paid attention to the Wolf's Den. Mm. Uh, how, uh, how, it seems like giving you a couple of hours to talk is not hard for you to fill. Uh, so uh, what, what comes from that? Is, you know, you, you, you're bringing on interesting folks and all that, but what, what do you do with it other than you know, just gives you another outlet to, to talk? The, the Wolf's Den, so um, you know, I got very lucky because my son turned 22, he started working at 22, and he kind of forced me to go into the modern world, right? He's like, you, dad, you gotta go on Instagram, you gotta do something. I was like, no, 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 we're doing well. And so he forced me to go into that, and he actually begged me to do a podcast. So I had been on everyone else's podcast, and I love doing podcasts because I love hearing myself speak. Like, <laughs> I just, I'm one of those people. That, anybody here have a fear of public speaking here? Anyone? You probably, a lot of you, if you admit it, you hate public speaking. I have a fear of not public speaking. <laughs> I love talking. I just do. It's, I'm happiest when I'm like this on stage talking, right? So, um, so the thought of doing a podcast when I actually had to interview other people I was like, wait a sec, wait, they're going to talk? I don't want that. <laughs> so, 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 I, so I finally broke down and started doing it. And in the first couple of podcasts, I kept interrupting my guests. I'm like, ah, wait a second. <laughs> and then I realized, and I look at the comments, like, will you stop interrupting people? So I, so I, I trained myself to actually become a better listener. And yeah. I'm a very good listener when it comes to selling. But in podcasting, um, it took me a couple of episodes. But now I really enjoy it. And I know the people that um, listen really enjoy it. And I've had some really interesting experiences. I've tried all sorts of different guests. Yep. So I, tr so, I want, you know, in the first three months, I wanted to find the boundaries of the fringes of my market, which, which are the guests that connect with my fan base, which are the ones that really don't. I tried some interesting people. And at the end of the day, not surprisingly, the, the ones that do best are the ones that are very entrepreneurship-centric, yep. sales-centric, or very interesting business-type personalities. Yep. When you go outside that, not as much. Do you think it all 
about, and you talk about your son bringing you into the, into the technology age, do you think at all about where communication will, what will be the next Instagram? What will be the next Facebook? Do you, do you think at all about how you're going you know, to pass this, this business along? So, that, so I'll tell you, so I, was in a, I, I got hired to speak at a, a mastermind, which is, when a lot, which is when a group of people get together and they exchange ideas and help each other and do hot seats and stuff, right? So um, one of the speakers got up and started talking about this thing called TikTok. Anyone know TikTok, mm-hmm. right? So TikTok is a new platform, right? Relatively new. It used to be called Musical.ly. When you look at you at whatever your IQ is, it starts to go down as you look at it. <laughs> you get dumber as you watch it. Just trust me, you do. So I used to have a really high IQ. It's gotten I'm down by ten points already, right? And and what it is, it's it's people like just doing stupid shit, basically. <laughs> okay, lip syncing to songs, and you can't even. It, it, honestly, it almost defies imagination, right? But. For some reason, the way the algorithms work, you get massive reach on these videos, all right? It's a very young platform dominated by 13 and 14-year-olds, okay? But the 15 and 16, there's older people too. So, and I think it's probably dominated, it's okay. So the viewers are a lot of 13, 14, but the content is more like 17, 18. They like lead it and the younger people watch, right? So that's, those kids have all seen the movie a thousand times. They all want to. So I was fortunate to be able to get all the top TikTokers to come to my office mm-hmm. and do all these viral videos with me. So I, cause I, I said, I'm not going to miss the boat on this mm-hmm. one. Right. And I started doing these TikTok videos I was, and I said to my friends, I, I want, you know, you're probably not going to want to hang out with me after today when you see the stuff I just did. Cause it's so stupid. I mean, it's like, they actually, uh, give me, give me an example. They're like. And I, I would show you on if I had this. You can't even believe it happened. But there's like seven kids. There's, a, there's actually a song, believe it or not. Some of you might know. You're probably mostly too old, which means you're over the age of 21. Okay? There's a song called Jordan Belfort. Believe Anyone know the song? It's the world's stupidest song. But someone wrote this song, and it became the number one hit in history on Spotify. It's Spotify's number one played song of all time for college, because college kids will play it again and again and again, and it's just called Jordan Belfort. It's really embarrassing, right? But I said, okay, well, if you can't beat them, join them, right? So after ignoring this for all these years, I said to the TikTokers, let's do something to the Jordan Belfort song, right? And they all came to my office, and they all jump on my desk, and they're singing it, and I pretend to walk in and see them there, right? They think of like three million views or something. You know, it's like crazy, right? And then they did something with beatboxing, with a, you know that thing? So they do, I mean, so, so, so that's an example of a, of a new platform. Check it out, your kids are on it. I'm sure your kids are on it, okay? Um, and, and you get massive reach with these new platforms because the algorithms aren't as developed, so you can kind of hack them a bit better. With Facebook and Instagram right now, it's very hard to get reach outside your core group without paying for it. They make you, they've sort of tightened it up now so you can't quite get the reach without putting extra money into your, into your advertising. But I'll tell you what, I, and I, I, for instance, a, you might know the young girl, her name is Amanda Cerny. Some of you might know her, okay? She's a legend, she's 28 years old now. Uh, she's incredibly popular on social media, 20 million followers, right? Uh, 10 on, on Instagram, 10 million on YouTube. Very, very beautiful girl, very smart, right? So she's, I, her and I started collaborating together, right? And, and, you know, and since then, like my social now is, I'm getting like, I'm picking up like eight to 10,000 followers per day now 
on Instagram just by collaborating. So here's an example of, so the quickest way really is to do is collaboration. So I really strongly recommend that if you're looking to do social media, um, just, it's just finding people that have a similar demographic to your slide, just like that, but, and then just posting each other's stuff as dumb as it sounds, it actually works. Yeah, yeah. So um, we, I want to make sure that, and I'm sure there's, there's some folks out there that, that would be disappointed in me if we talked only about the business stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put on my, you know, if we had some music, maybe the entertainment tonight music will come up and all that. So um, it had to be flattering that you were able to influence and have Leonardo DiCaprio and not Jonah Hill play you. How, uh, how, how did you figure out how to get Leo to be you? So, right, I always say it's better than Danny DeVito, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I love Danny DeVito, right? You know, um, so what happened was, is, is a really interesting story, it's wild. So I, I wrote this book, I, I'll tell you how I, I wrote the book, because I go to jail, and they put me in this, it's, it wasn't a terrible jail, I, you know, I wasn't scared was, to go in It was camp. Yeah, it was camp. I wasn't scared of, you know, getting bent over in the shower. It wasn't like that, right? You know? I'll be honest. I mean, I could have said that a lot more grossly, but I'm, I'm, on, a, I'm on good behavior. We're good, Because it's, it's National ni was it ni Niceness Day or something? It's National Niceness Day, nice. that's right. I could have said that much more graphically, right? But anyway, uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. Hey, but the, <laughs> no, keep going. No, where are the old... <laughs> but when I wasn't in the shower, who was my bunkmate? It was actually Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. <laughs> he, him and I shared a, a cell, because we were both high profile. They put us together to watch us or whatever, right? And for the first few nights, like I, you know, I'm telling him these stories, and he's telling me stories, and my stories, he's rolling on the floor, like <laughs> laughing. And the third night, he goes, you know, honestly, I thought you were full of shit. But my wife Googled you, and it's all true. It's like, oh, she found this stuff about you. He goes, you got to write a book. And I'm like, really? Like, now, honestly, I, you know, it's my, it was my life. I didn't think it was that crazy because it was my life. I was like, really? You think my life's crazy? He goes, your life is crazy. I'm like, really? Okay. Like, it just seemed like it was my life. That's how it happened step by step. You're like, I was like that proverbial mouse that, you know, you didn't drop me into the boiling water. You slowly turned up the heat and boiled me to death. It all seemed normal to me, right? Because it happened over, over 12 years, right? So I said, all right, let me give it a whirl. So I start trying to write, and I'm the worst writer. I, I can't write anything. It's just so dry and terrible. And I show my work to Tommy. I'm like, what do you think? He's like, oh, that really sucks. I'm like, thanks, Tommy. Tell me what you really think. You know, my life's bad enough in jail, right? And then after about a month of trying and failing, I go into the prison library and I stumble upon a book that some of you may have read called Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. And as soon as I start reading this book, I'm like, wow. I'm like, I want to write like this. There was a voice to it. And it was the first time I really understood the power of a voice. And it was an ironic voice. And, and I felt on some level the character, she had similar qualities to me. And I read through the book in one night, then I picked out a yellow highlighter, and I went through it and used this book like a textbook, and I actually cracked Tom Wolfe's code for writing. I taught myself to write by using that book as a textbook. Um, and my writing dramatically improved. Then after I kind of, you know, my work started to get pretty good, I then started studying Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. You probably know that book by Hunter S. Thompson. And those two authors were really my mentors. I used, I, you know, you don't have to know your mentors. You can model people without ever meeting them by looking at their published works. And I did that, 
And I, got, I was so insane with trying to learn to write. I, I paid kids in jail to like, I said, all right, I want you to go through this book and every time he does, uses a metaphor, a simile, write it down. I gave him like four cans of tuna fish. That's like currency <laughs> in jail, right? And when I got out of jail, and I, I wrote about 150 pages in jail and I ripped them up. I said, they're not good enough. When I got out of jail now, you know, I didn't know what to do. I said, let me just try to write again. So I wrote about eight or nine pages, and when I looked at the page, I was like, wow. I'm like, those look pretty good, right? So I sent him to an agent, he's like, calls me back, and I just didn't really know the guy. He goes, who wrote, did you pay Tom Wolf to write these pages? He thought Tom Wolf had written, that's how close I mailed his strategy for writing. And um, he's like, that's, they're really good. He goes, write 10 more. So I wrote 10 more, and I sent him those pages. He goes, stop everything you're doing. He goes, this book is gonna be a big blah, blah, blah. I thought he was crazy, but I did that. Finished the book, and as soon as the book was finished, it wasn't even out, it was a manuscript. There was a very powerful Hollywood agent, still a very close friend of mine, uh, and she slipped the book to Leo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Mark Wahlberg, and George Clooney, all four. And George Clooney was away, and Brad Pitt, Leo, and Mark Wahlberg went crazy. They all wanted to play the character, and the bidding war started. At the time, Mark Wahlberg was not nearly as big a star, so he got iced out. He still hates this person, hate me, but he hates this person. I know Mark Wahlberg, and he doesn't resent me for it, but he really he got iced out of the bidding. It was Leo and Brad Pitt, and I remember it was a Friday evening, and my agent calls me, he goes, you're not gonna believe there's a bidding war going on with Leo and Brad Pitt, and each side said, whatever they pay, I'll pay 10% more. So up and up and up it went all night, and then finally about midnight, Leo calls me, he goes, I got Marty Scorsese to agree to direct it. What was I gonna do there, right? <laughs> I'm like, sold to you, right? And that was that. And, and it really, I'll tell you, the, I think the best part of the whole story um, is that, so Marty signs on, it's announced publicly, it's a big deal, it was a bidding war, and they made this whole thing like Leo and Brad were enemies, they weren't, it was just bidding on, on a project, right? Um, and my book then sold in 50 countries because of that, like right away. So they hired a screenwriter named Terry Winter, who some of you might know, maybe not from his name, but he was the showrunner for both Boardwalk Empire and Sopranos. Hugely successful guy. He writes this, the screenplay. Now, normally it takes six or seven drafts. This guy, the first draft is like unbelievably perfect. Everyone reads this thing. Everyone's like, oh my God, it's so great, right? He captures the whole thing perfectly. Warner Brothers loves it. They green light the movie. Everyone's ready to go. This is now 2007. It's like September 2007. Like, oh my God, my life is going to be great again. I, mean, I just got out of jail, right? It was, my life was, was absolute shit back then, right? And then the writer's strike hits. Remember the writer's mm -hmm. strike in Hollywood? Mm -hmm. And they can't, Terry cannot polish the script. So the window closes, Leo and Marty do Shutter Island instead, and then I get caught up in the disaster of Marty Scorsese, who while he is the worst, the best director in the world, he's slow. And he had another project he wanted. So six years passed by now, six years. I was so devastated at this point because I had really no money. I, was, had, I hadn't started going out on the road and speaking yet, right? I didn't know what I was gonna do, right? And then finally, about five years passes, right? And during that time frame, I, I began teaching sales again, and I ended up making tons of money again. I, I became very successful, right? And Leo calls me five or six years later. He's like, buddy, you're not gonna believe this. We're ready to go now. We're gonna do this, it's happening finally, right? 
He goes, I want to come over and talk to you and work, and I, I don't spend time with you. I said, great, come on over, I get my address. The first time Leo met with me at my house, I was living in a tiny apartment, okay, with like no furniture. Right now I'm living in a $12 million house on the ocean, okay, and Leo walks in, he's like, what the hell happened to your life? I don't understand what happened. I said, well, I, I started teaching this thing I have called the straight line. I do seminars. He's like, well, show me. I show him the video of me on stage doing my speech. He's like, oh, my God, Marty's got to see this. Anyway, the first draft of the movie, the one that was supposed to come out, ended with me in jail. That was how the movie ended, because that was my life back then. When Marty Scorsese saw this, he rewrote, they, they rewrote the entire third act and included it in my seminars and sell me this pen, and it became a, came, a comeback yep. story. Yep. So imagine the difference in my life from a movie that ended with me in jail versus a movie that ends me back on stage on top again and the whole sales training is in the movie. So it just goes to show you the power that you have over your own life, especially when things don't go your way. I mean, I had this terrible thing happen in 2007. The movie almost got made. And you know, while it wasn't a good thing, I did what I, you know, it wasn't like I say I acted, oh, let me make this into a good thing. No, I just did what I had to do. And yep. when it came back, I think there's a really great life lesson in there. So that's great. That really is. Um, so stay in, you know, thinking about that time back then, those who saw the movie, read your books. Um, can you talk about some of the primary characters? Sure. Uh, can you, uh, I'm pretty sure that there's a, a, a KGB ring that never came back yeah. and, uh, so, give, give, give us an update on some of the prime characters. So he's referring to uh, my third wife, still a, another wife ago. Can you believe it? All right. <laughs> it's very expensive after a while, okay? <laughs> and emotionally expensive more than anything. But, but um, so, so what happened was, uh, starting with the Jonah Hill character, Danny. D Danny was a really interesting guy. I mean... Very smart guy, great junior partner, but he was so wild, Danny. Like, Danny was my, you know, we, we all love to have someone in, in our lives like Danny. You know why? I'll tell you what. Because no matter how many, how much drugs I consumed, no matter how many insane things I did, I'm like, when I get to be as bad as him, I know I got a problem. <laughs> you get it? Like, Danny was that guy I could poison. Boy, he's, you're really fucked up, Danny. <laughs> And also, Danny loved to get his fingernails dirty. I was not like that. I, was, I probably could not have done a lot of what I did without Danny because I was more of the ideas guy. I was the motivator. I was the sales trainer. But Danny would go out into the boardroom. He's grabbed the guy's fish and swallow a fish. It was <laughs> Danny that tossed the midget, not me, okay? So, you know, so Danny was like, just w loved the wild side of it a lot more than I did. Um, and Danny became very successful again afterwards, but then he got in trouble again, so who knows? I lost touch with him, you know, he's a nice guy, but um, I got sober many years before him, I had to cut out all those. When you get sober, you have to cut out all relationships right. of people who are doing drugs, right? So I lost touch with him. Um, the, the one that, my second wife, the Margot Robbie character, is the yeah. mother of my children, so of course she'll never be out of my life completely. Um, and together we raised two amazing kids, my daughter now is 26. She just graduated from NYU grad school. She's a psychologist now, um, and she's amazing, and she's brilliant, we're very close. My son is, is from the movie is a musician, rapper. Really, he's a brilliant, he's like me, he's a writer. He's really great, he's gonna be famous. Uh, and then my stepson from the last marriage that just ended, another one just ended like two months ago, okay? 
but you don't divorce the kids, right? So I said, I picked up another son out of the equation, which is great, he works for me. Um, he works for me and he's just a really great, aspiring, you know, millionaire businessman. He's great, I love him to death as well. So my kids are all doing great. The one you're talking to was my next wife, was the Russian. Yeah. So everybody has to have one Russian in their life, okay? <laughs> you learn your lesson after that. I'm not sure the president agrees, but you can go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> one Russian woman. The problem with her was that she, you know, she, it, it, we were together for three years, three terrible years, right? And, and in those three years, she never it, said it, the word. All the moments weren't terrible. I yeah, mean, having. There were some good moments. Well, she, okay. was the, she was the first and last Miss Soviet Union. She won the contest. She was the first Miss Soviet Union, and then the country collapsed the next year. So when I met her eight years later, she was still wearing the sesh. I'm still Miss the Soviet Union. I'm not even kidding you, by the way. She's still, she ne and, and she never could say the word the, because they don't have the word the. I want to go to store. I'm like, the store. Just the. I want to go to like, the restaurant. Just say the word the once. Just fucking once. She, she wouldn't say the word the. It drove me. It's like thing in there. Finally, after three years, she says the word the at the wrong time. We're in New York, and it's a beautiful dish. It's, ah, it is nice out. Let us go to the Central Park. I'm like, now you say it at the wrong time? The Central Park? She was a, no, she's a nice girl, but like, she really didn't love America. She did it. Like, she, she, the first week we met, we were on the beach, and we're lying there, and we look up at the moon, like, oh, wow, and can you believe we walked on the moon? She goes, what? What do what you mean? This is hoax. I'm like, what? You do this to embarrass Mother Russia. She didn't, she thought it was a conspiracy that we went to the moon to like embarrass Russia, right? She's like, I'm like, Yulia. Her name was Yulia, not Julia. I called her Julia. Julia is dog's name. I'm Yulia, right? So, <laughs> so I, I said, Yulia. I said, we went to the moon three times, three landings. So let me just get this straight. Let's say we, you go once. And okay, it's to embarrass Mother Russia, right? So watch. So we go, we have to swear a thousand people to secrecy. We have to fool the whole world, all right? And in our country, everything gets, there's no secrets, everything gets out. But let's just say you did it and you got away with it. 1,000 people sworn to secrecy in a studio. No one talks. You get it with everyone. Wow, we went great. And we come back. So what do you do? Okay, now watch closely, Mr. Khrushchev, while we fool you a second time. You would never do it a second time. Right? Think of it. You wouldn't do it a second time. She said, oh, you, you brainwash. I'm like, brainwash. Because you brainwash. <laughs> Thanks, God. Right? Anyway. That was Yulia. We didn't, I gave her a seven-carat ring, which she kept, by the way. And the, when we got separated, the night she turned the ring in, like, I am Russian. I will not give back ring. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so and she it, had this guy <laughs> she had like a handler like in, the dreaded Igor Igor was always lurking somewhere e I'm not have, even making this up there Igor. was a guy named Igor who was like always around Igor my brother-in-law like I don't know Igor anyway so 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 sadly you said number number four you've my last one my last wife um yeah we we, we separated two months ago which is really sad because i do love her i still love her um i guess i'm not a picnic to live with i don't know so all you women out there no. so um well, i didn't know if you were going to go for one for the thumb or <laughs> no that was really weird it just like ended like it was just a sort of this is i think the last one was more of like a you know this is a, a marriage that was sober 
I didn't cheat on her once. I admit I cheated all. I did my best dating after I got married the first time. I'll admit that, all right? <laughs> but. Is that, is that one of the techniques you teach, or? Yes. <laughs> it's how to blow up a marriage and get it again. No, but this time, though, the last time, I was actually, I was faithful. I know women, it's not like a, like, so what? What, do you want a medal for that? Not really. I'm not saying I want a medal, but I was faithful. All right, and uh, it just kind of like, it, it kind of, we, I think both of us, uh, we just didn't, like, we took it for granted the last year or two, and it's, you know, it was really sad, and, and so, once again, I'm single, so uh, that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you have said that you're willing to, you know, shake hands a little bit outside, so ladies, uh, you know, if you're, <laughs> you know, if you're, so, so, but we still, we still have I'm a really bit. nice. Should I have a profile up on like on, on what is it, those play things called, like Tinder? <laughs> Tinder. I, don't know. I don't think that would go over too well in the press, yeah? So, so from here you're going to, to Macau. Next stop, Macau. Then from Macau, I go to New York. Then from New York, I go to, um, to um, Guadalajara. Then um, there I go to Mexico City. And on and on it goes. So, I mean, so the flywheel has started, you know, it's going. Um, what's, what's next? And staying away from the jokes about number five, but, you know, uh, uh oh, there we go. Once the system doesn't say Jordan Belfort above it, it's just the system, but what's, what's next? What, what, what's going what's to be called In 2020, I'm planning to do a really, really um, large, you know, big footprint college tour. Something I really want to do, and I have this, this uh, a girl who's going to do it with me. She's a very famous influential man. Doesn't going to do it, and we're going to we want to do that, and then also put a YouTube show attached to it. We could have all of these kids who want to be entrepreneurs like kind of pitch us their ideas and stuff, and like kind of a combination of American Idol and Shark Tank. Yep. Um, and I think that's going to be really really fun. And also, I'm, you know, I'm really my my business, the actual online aspect of my business, um, especially the B two B. Um, has been growing dramatically. So I, I, I redid the straight line system and I put it on a robust platform mm -hmm. that's designed to be delivered to business owners for larger companies so they can have like 50, 100 people on it. It's amazing training. Um, and so I have a lot of, I'm doing a, a lot of that, Got just it. going around to the businesses. You know. Got it. So I got to take you back one more, just you know, thinking about the books. You were driving the boat when it sank though, right? I wasn't driving the boat. I was influencing the captain to drive the boat. <laughs> I convinced the captain. So the movie, here's what the, the movie's fictionalized here. So what happened was, is I, it, I, I did pressure the captain to take the boat out into a storm. The, the movie says the reason I had to do that was because I had to get back to Switzerland because my aunt had died and there's some paperwork. Well, that was also true. But like a lot of things in the movie, they collapse time and interwove stories together to try to make it all work as a movie. The, the, I didn't take the boat on that crossing because I had to go anywhere. What happened was I was freaking high as a kite. I was just high, all right? And I, my primary drug of choice was quaaludes, all right? For the older people, some of you might know what they are. The young ones, thank God you don't, all right? Because they're illegal now for many years, you can't find them. But you know, they give you this incredibly, you know, buzzed feeling, and it's very euphoric, right? But there was different phases to a quaalude high. You had the tingle phase, 
where your fingertips would tingle and it was really euphoric, right? Then you'd have the slur phase where you'd slur your words, but you didn't really care. Then you'd have the drool phase where you drool and that was okay too. And then you'd have unconsciousness where you'd pass out, right? It was a, a barbiturate, right? But then there was also a fifth phase that would happen every once in a while if you mixed it with the other drugs like cocaine, and I always did, right? And, and you had, it was called the movement phase, where you, it was like the drug-induced equivalent of ants in your pants. You couldn't sit still. And when you were in the movement phase, you couldn't be in one spot, it's like death. So what happened was when I went to the, it was in Italy, and I, we were going down the hill to the yacht, and we noticed that the, there were like waves in the harbor, it was really rough, and, and my wife said, oh, we can't, we can't go, we were supposed to go right to Sardinia. And I realized, oh my God, I'm in the movement phase, I, have to, I can't sit in the harbor. Like the thought of sitting in the harbor would have just, I would have killed myself, right? So when we got to the boat, like, you know, my wife said, Captain Mark, can we make the crossing? I'm like, I just please go downstairs, right? So I said, can we make the crossing? He's like, well, we can, it's gonna be kind of rough, there's a storm. I said, can we make it? He goes, yes, we can make it. I said, well, let's just do it then. And I convinced him, because I just couldn't sit still. And I, we got in the boat, I went up to the top deck, I took a couple more quaaludes, fell asleep, and I woke up to the feeling of sea spray on my face, and that was when I realized this little storm turned into a 4-7 gale with 50-foot waves, and we're out of 50 miles offshore, and literally, it was like the perfect storm. Like that movie, it was just like that. And it was so crazy, and the boat sank. Yeah, that's what happened. Unbelievable. Well, yeah. we're, we're coming down to the end here, and I've had, had, a, had a great time on, on uh, National Kindness Day, and appreciate your kindness. And, uh, in it the, should be National Forgiveness Day. <laughs> <laughs> well, my Catholicism won't allow that, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep that to myself. Um, with, uh, with, that, with that being said, um, the, the, you know, it's, a, and it's an incredible group out here. Uh, if, if, if you were given, you know, the two or three minutes to, you know, do that motivational thing to, you know, get these folks out of here all pumped up and jazzed and going to figure out how to sell something today, what would you, uh, what would you, what would you do with that at the morning meeting to get these guys going with two or three minutes? Well, I, I think, you know, remember this, guys, you know, and I say guys is gender neutral here, is that, you know, motivation into itself is like a warm bath. You know, it feels really good, and you should probably take one every single day, but it doesn't really do that much for you, right? So when I actually motivate people, I always try to mix in skills training with motivation. The idea is so many of you, you know, we all arrive at any one point in our lives with successes, failures, setbacks, right? And we start to think of ourselves as, you know, we are the sum total of our past experiences, both good and bad. And one thing I can promise you is that is a load of bullshit. It really is. Any human being sitting in this room right now is capable of achieving absolute greatness in their life. You are. The thing is, there's work to do. You have to educate yourself. You have to learn certain things. There are these two sides to the equation. of the inner game of success, your mindset, your ability to manage your state, your belief systems, your standards, your vision for the future. That's the inner game. Then the outer game is, you know, your ability to act as an entrepreneur, whether you own a business or not, to think entrepreneurially, to take risks, know how to manage risks, to grow, to essentially scale when things are going well. How do you close? That's a skill. Sale. How do you close the deal? How do you influence, negotiate? How do you market yourself? Online, offline, right? Those pillars of success, all you have to do is educate yourself, learn the things you have to learn. Learn how to become a more effective influencer, communicator. 
Learn how to market yourself. You know, manage your mindset. I promise you, if you work hard and you have a vision for your future, I don't care what happened in your life, you're not the mistakes of your past. You're the resources and capabilities from your past. Every human, and I've seen this myself, and I've trained millions of people, you are capable of so much more than you realize. It's all about, you know, we, we get to this point, we start to think that, you know, we're on a path, that's our lot in life. It's bullshit. It's just not true. It's about just setting a vision. You have to have a vision for your future to know where you want to go in life, something that really turns you on, and understanding your why. I'll tell you a story in closing here. When I was in jail, right, I wrote this book. I taught myself to write. And it, was and it changed everything. And journalists often ask me, how were you able to do that? Most people go to jail and they'll either, you know, it's like gladiators, so they'll get worse, or they simply will just pass the time and do nothing. Yet I went in there and emerged a far more powerful person because I taught myself a skill, writing. And that was my way of communicating my story. It serves as a springboard for everything. So they say, how did you do that? How did you overcome the negative? Because jail does suck. I made light of it, but... I was locked away, my kids are not there, I was embarrassed, I lost everything. My money, my self-respect, my pride, my children for a time. It sucked, right? But here's the secret. I had a powerful why. I knew why I had to come back. I knew why, it did not, not for money, not for fame. In those moments, when I felt like I couldn't go on, and there were many, I promise you, almost every night in bed, in jail, when I was alone with my thoughts, I would close my eyes and I would see the faces of my two children. That was it. I came back for my kids. That was my why. You're, once you know your why, why you really want to achieve, why do you want to improve your life? What, I had the power of the love of my children. I'd embarrass them, I'd let them down. I would do anything to make it right to be a success in the eyes of my kids. Our why is not about money, it's not about yourself, it's about a cause you believe in, someone you love unconditionally, and once you tap into the power of your why, and you learn those other skills, you have to have the outer world skills too. Once you have those th that together, you become an unstoppable force, and everyone here is capable of doing it, I promise you. There's work to do, but if you wanna live a first-class life, you know the movie Jerry Maguire, like the Quan, your Quan, the highest life. I mean, it's possible for everyone here. And you can do that right now, starting today. There you go. Jordan Brelford, thank, thank you. you, everybody. Thanks, Jordan. My pleasure.